Hey, want to start a podcast? Spotify has a platform that allows you to create one so easily you won't believe it. And the best part, it's totally free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters allows you to record, edit, and distribute your episodes right from your phone or computer. You can also add songs from Spotify's library, edit with cool transitions, and then hear your show on all the big networks, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. You can also earn money through ads and subscriptions. And once again, for those in the back, it's completely free with no catch. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries. I'm your host, Nate Kelly, a recovering alcoholic seven years from my last drink, a recovery mentor and podcast producer. I am so grateful to be bringing you these powerful stories of recovery told by you those who live them. Please share this podcast with anyone who may need it today. And with that, let's open the diary on episode 87. I am here with my new friend, Carl Considine. Carl, I feel like we're best friends already, but welcome, my friend. How are you this morning? Thank you. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. The sun is shining in in England, which um, is not very common. So um the whole of Manchester, where I live, is in a good mood. The sun's shining through my window. Um, yeah, life's good. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We've jumped through a few hoops to get here. We both have busy schedules, but, you know, things happen as they should. So I'm excited to chat this morning. Carl is the host of the What Next podcast. And I, I want to start with the podcast because I'm very impressed. And as a fairly new podcaster, and I think you have five episodes out now, and I will link everything in today's show notes appropriately. But I have to say, I I was so impressed with the audio quality and the production of things and your interview style, and you're so sensitive and empathetic with the guest, and, and I'm, I'm very impressed with the podcast, highly recommended. So let's start there. Tell me where the motivation for the podcast came from and what that journey has been like. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I when I knew I was going to be guesting on this show, I've obviously been listening to your show and um, I've really connected with it and it's you know similar to kind of what I'm trying to create and yeah I felt a bit nervous because I was like okay I'm speaking to a pro now so um, yeah I appreciate that feedback um, I think what the catalyst for me was purely and simply just to help other people and to really put a spotlight on a conversation around our relationship with alcohol and or drugs um, so that it is something people talk about more and there's less stigma, there's less shame attached to it. And not just for addicts, alcoholics or addicts, you know, I described myself as both. I had a problem with booze and I had a problem with cocaine. Um, 
But for people that, you know, maybe are just questioning their relationship with alcohol um, and or drugs, I wanted to try and raise conversations that are accessible, that are relatable, and hopefully just provide some level of identification, some level of insight that, you know, people might find useful. And as a result of that, might think about um, making some sort of change, however big or or however small. So yeah, it, it's kind of putting the spotlight on on that whole side of things. With the intention to inspire change, which I saw in your show notes. And I think that's a great way to describe it. And the relatable, you mentioned being relatable. And I think that that is probably one of the most important things, you know, we want listeners to hear a little bit of themselves, right? And to be Mm -hmm. able to identify what the similarities and not the differences. And perhaps, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever they may hear, it could be the smallest aspect to someone's story or something that the guest on the podcast could be a fleeting moment in something that they say that they never thought would actually be the catalyst to inspire that change in someone. But I love that you said relatability, because I think that's so important. Yeah, yeah. And I'll be honest, Nate, for a long time when I was in my addiction, I thought I was unique. I thought that only I had my problem and that if you'd had my life and if you'd lived through what I'd lived through and you don't know what goes on inside my head, it was you know, ego talking, it was my way of creating excuses to not change. Um, It was my way of excusing the way that I was living. And I see that now, but obviously didn't see it then. And I didn't think anyone else was like me. And then in early sobriety, I started to go to fellowship meetings. And I remember going to my very first meeting and hearing people share and Every person, it was like they were talking about me and it was like they'd been inside my head. They understood my thoughts. They were talking about my experiences. Um, And that's kind of, that's really stuck with me. The power of people sharing and people's stories. That's where you make a change, right? Because I had a couple of attempts at getting sober where I sought help from professional services and kind of medical services, et cetera. And I struggled back then. Um, I did eventually get help through treatment um, and through fellowship, but for a long time I struggled with people in a professional role offering me help and advice because I would often just bat that off. I would reject it because you know my own narrative was, "Oh, well, you don't understand me, and you're not an alcoholic, so you don't understand it." Um, so yeah, I think that relatability that that's basically what it built on. So I'm glad that you picked up on that. That's a great point. It's hard to, first of all, I I relate so much to, you know, when we are in these fellowship meetings and you start hearing other people literally telling your story, it's the wildest thing, right? Because we Mm -hmm. do have this sort of internal monologue about if you have seen what I've seen, you drink too, or, you know, this narrative that we say to ourselves for so long and then start to believe that it's true. But when we hear other people literally telling our story, it sort of, 
it bring knocks us down a few levels, right? It removes that uniqueness. It yeah. starts to chip away at that ego a little bit, which is necessary to humble ourselves, right? Um, but another thing, in I, perhaps your most recent episode, I think it was with Caroline discussing just how sobriety is not linear and it's not one size fits all. And, you know, she may have a glass of champagne at her friend's wedding, or somebody may still use marijuana for harm reduction, or, or, you know, somebody doesn't use heroin anymore, but they still drink on the weekends. You know, sobriety is, I think, a state of mind, first of all, and it is Mm -hmm. a way for us to live a better life and if we are making progress and we are not partaking in the things that used to cripple us or ruin our lives or you know it's not linear and it can look different for each person so i love that caroline brought that up and and this this idea that sobriety is one size fits all is just ridiculous to me and and part Mm -hmm. of you know, what I like to use my platform is to bring awareness to that. So I guess um, I'm asking for your thoughts on sort of this linear idea of sobriety or, you know, how you uh, sort of highlight that with your guests on the show. Yeah, let's let's start there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think people would assume because I'm in recovery that I might have a black and white view on this um, and that is one or the other. Um, and I really don't. And that's why I asked Caroline to come on the show because she, you know, Caroline describes herself as sober-ish and, um, you know, she used to drink quite a lot and then she made a conscious decision around her consumption and and since then has, has barely drunk at all, as you say. And I think that's so interesting and I think it's so powerful because people might want to make those changes in their life and they don't have a problem with drink or drugs, but they get put off by the concept that it's infinite, it's forever, it's like all or nothing. And I just think as humans, like the moment, psychologically, the moment something becomes all or nothing, it's really easy to just disengage in that. Um, And that's not how life works, right? Life isn't all or nothing. Everything is within a shade of grey and we operate in between in those gaps, in those nuances. And yeah, if my story and other people's stories that perhaps are more severe can provide some self-awareness, some reflection on someone's drinking behaviour and they say, actually, do you know what? It's not a problem for me. I, I cannot drink if I don't want to. I don't need to go that far. I'm just going to reduce my consumption. And, um, you know, I, in a way, I'm describing that really simplistically. And it's probably not that simple because it's not just the individual's actions. It's the environment that we live in, right? So society and, and social pressures and, you know, booze is something that a lot of things we do in life revolves around booze. So you know, if there are people that are looking to reduce their consumption, just going to parties, going to events, being in social situations often can be quite difficult. And I think there's some middle ground there where people might need help just to 
get through those types of events and occasions. But yeah, it. I think there's a bit of a movement and I think more and more people are interested in being sober-ish mm-hmm, as opposed right. to just being totally abstinent. You know, I was highlighting these this idea of like the dry January or sober October and, you know, people frowning upon that, like, well, it's a short-term fix and this and that. And, you know, my reply to that is whatever works, you know, if you're taking 30 days to remove alcohol from your life, you know, in most cases, as we know, you're going to start to realize the benefits of removing Mm -hmm. alcohol from your life and this clear mind and, you know, removing the brain fog and relationships and, and waking up in the morning feeling like you're not dead to the world. And, you know, if you're going to commit to 30 days, bravo, because in my mind, I know that you're going to start realizing the benefits and maybe extend that or then do, you know, dry July or whatever it may be. And, you know, it, whatever plants the seed and it may be another year or two or or however long it may be that works for you, you know, as long as that seed is planted, uh, I know, you know, that that most likely that person is going to come back around. So, uh, you know, again, mm-hmm. just to sort of highlight that sentiment or kind of put a bow on our conversation, uh, whatever works, right? Yeah, totally, totally. And you know what else I think people get as a result of it? Not just It's not just the realizations that, oh, I don't have a hangover or I save a bit of money and I've got more time. There are the really obvious things, right? But then I think what people also get from it is some power and some confidence in making a decision for me. Like, this is a decision I'm making. This is a choice I'm making because... I value myself. I want to invest in myself. And I think that then there's a domino effect to that. And people start to feel more confident in the future thinking, you know what, I'm going to put myself first. Um, And I think that's so powerful. Carl, as you know, uh, I like to uh, highlight sort of the personal story as well on the Sobriety Diaries and start, uh, give us sort of a snapshot of, of Carl you know, deciding that that a change was needed and sort of what that transition looked like into, you know, deciding on on your personal path to recovery and then what things look like today. For a long time, I didn't know I had a problem. So, yeah, I guess hello denial um, was very much um, kind of in my camp and um, I think I didn't recognize my drinking being problematic because I surrounded myself with other people that drank like me and um, other people that liked to take drugs to the extent that I did. I always thought that I just liked the party and I liked to socialize. I liked to go out with my gay friends and have fun and do all of that stuff and, um, you know, live in my best life. But not really acknowledging that attached to that were many, many consequences um, that were really starting to impact my health, my mental health, my physical health, work, relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I always used to describe myself as a bit of a party boy and um, 
I kind of always been quite deeply embedded within the gay community. And if I'm honest, I think that there's a bit of a problem in the gay community with drink and drugs and how normalized usage can be and how normalized and even glamorized it can be to to do it to an extent that is just really unhealthy and, and really quite toxic. Um, and that environment really got a hold of me for far too long. Um, you know, I was always the last person at a party, always the person stood on the dance floor when the lights came up, always then in the taxi queue looking for the next party to go to. It, you know, I didn't have an off button. It was always give me more, give me more, give me more. And the environment with the community allowed me to be able to do that to the extent that I did. Um, what I learned kind of through, I guess, uh, retrospectively through therapy and through treatment when I got sober, is that a lot of my behavior was attached to shame, was attached to um, kind of uh, self-worth and self-esteem issues. I was raised in quite a dysfunctional, broken environment as a child. My parents separated when I was quite young. Um, my mum, unfortunately, took a path that involved drink and drugs that uh, meant as children, me and my sisters were exposed to lots of things that we shouldn't have been exposed to at a very young age. And um, yeah, I guess I'd not dealt with that stuff. And to an extent, I was seeking oblivion to numb that pain, to not want to deal with and address some of those experiences. And when I went into treatment, it, you know, I had to lift the lid and I had to talk about those things and I had to deal with them and I had to let go of the past. And um, that's been the thing that has been, I guess, the kind of life changing element for me. So my last few years of addiction, I've, I've talked about me kind of being a party boy. My last few years of addiction were me just in my apartment, drinking and taking drugs alone and completely isolated. So not being a party boy, not out socializing, having fun. Sat in my one bedroom apartment, making trips to the shop to buy alcohol at all times of day to you know go out and meet my drug dealer. And just sat there doing that crying, sat there doing that feeling um suicidal um and it got really bad and i had there were a couple of things that kind of triggered and i guess brought around change for me one was a friend of mine who called me and and she basically said look i'm waiting for the police to ring to say that you're dead and um you know that's really brutal right but that's where based on what she was observing, based on what she was seeing in me, she was genuinely dreading a phone call to say that I wasn't here anymore because of my drink and drug use. And then in quite close succession to that, I'd been to the doctor and it was the first time that I'd been honest about my usage and I'd been honest because I was quite worried. I, My eyes were quite yellow and my stomach was quite swollen and I was having some kind of physical responses that I'd not experienced before and um, they took some bloods and when the doctors rang me they got an alcohol nurse to ring me with the results and she said you know based on your blood count based on what I'm seeing in your bloods you're going to die 
be very young if you keep drinking the way that you're drinking. Um, and I was 36 at the time. Um, and yeah, that just, I think it was a funny one, Nate, because I was so depressed at the time I wanted to die. And every time I went on a binge, I would pray that I wouldn't wake up. But then kind of ironically, or for want of a better expression, it someone telling me that I was going to die, I suddenly didn't want to. Um, and yeah, it was like, oh shit, I've got to do something about this. I can't, never mind, I can't put my family through this. I can't put myself through this. Um, so that was the catalyst for me being referred to treatment and um, yeah, getting some professional help. So I attended uh, what we call, uh, I don't know if you have this in the States, but it's called community rehab. So you go in the day, but in the evening you go back home. Um, and when you go back the next morning, every day you get tested to make sure that you're still sober and that you're clean. Um, but you do the same work that you do in rehab. Um, and I did that for three months at the start of my um, sobriety journey. And, and yeah, through that, met other sober people, got into the fellowship and things just kind of continued from there, really. We call that outpatient. So it would be inpatient, you know, is where you are housed in a facility for typically 30 days or outpatient where you do exactly what you described in community. That's interesting. What I saw when I was talking about the community, I I saw that you was nodding. So I guess I was getting that you were um, maybe had had some similar experiences or just agreeing with that point of view. Yes. So, so very much about the how, you know, toward the end of my addiction, things transitioned from being a very social you know, using alcohol as a, you know, sort of event thing where where it was always, you know, tied to being social, to transitioning to this very dark, very sort of necessity drinking where it was just wake up in the morning, check your inventory of booze, make sure, you know, I have enough for the day and do the same thing over and over, but it turned to this very dark, isolated, very non-social, disgusting thing. And I think that's where it, for us as addicts, that's where it takes us, right? And that's so sad um, that we end up alone and disconnected and isolated and, um, you know, I always say to people that towards the end, it, I was doing, because you just said that, I think you said feeling disgusting and I really identify with that. And I always say to people, it was as crazy as this sounds, it was all against my will for those last few years. I didn't want to do it. And I knew that I didn't want to do it, but I couldn't stop myself from doing it. It was, you know, I'd I'd make arrangements to to meet a drug dealer and my feet would be taking me there and I'd be, I, I wouldn't want to be going. It was like I didn't have control of myself. Um, and obviously I didn't. Um, but yeah, it was against my will. Um, it was against my will for far too long. I just feel very thankful that, you know, something got through when I managed to get out of that. 
and you know go in full circle i think that's why it's so important to share these stories the way that you are the way that i'm doing it now it because at some point you know maybe someone who's struggling right now might listen to this and it's not going in but at some point people remember things and people go back to things and you know somewhere something happens and something changes I guess that's a great sort of transition segue. It's kind of where we left off as well. Uh, I do want to, you know, dive in and talk more about addiction, uh, the addiction rates, the the mental health concerns within the queer community and our LGBT brothers and sisters. I think, uh, you know, the, the statistics are really alarming with uh, addiction and God forbid, uh, you know, the suicide rates uh, among queer youth is, is just staggering. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that and sort of, you know, where you stand as far as lending your voice and your podcast platform to addiction in the queer community. I know for me, there was a bit of internalized homophobia almost as I was, you know, coming to terms with myself and being in the closet for such a long time and sort of using alcohol to not only become comfortable with myself, but to be comfortable with other people and other gay men and coming out of my shell. And, you know, it worked mm-hmm. for a while until it didn't work. Can you relate that to your own story? Is is there a bit uh, of, of what I said that you can relate to? Yeah, yeah. I think for me, it was less internalized homophobia there was definitely some a journey with my acceptance of myself and my sexuality and um for a long time i tried to avoid it um i guess which is is fairly natural you know i grew up in quite a small town in england and i grew up in quite a a male-dominated environment in terms of my dad's one of many and they've got quite a few uncles and the sort of language that they used to use in my presence was just not very pleasant around gay people and what kind of prompted me to not want to be gay because I didn't want to be described in the ways that I would hear them describe gay people um and I guess I attached a lot to that in terms of, well, if that is what I am, you know, what does that mean for me? Am I a bad person, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I struggled with that in the run-up to me coming out. And I think for me with the gay community, because I always had this sense of not belonging as I was growing up and never really fitting in and always feeling like the odd one out in school um you know i got bullied quite a lot because i was quite feminine and um you know that was just i didn't really know what gay was then that's just the way that i was um yeah yeah that's just how i acted and existed and i didn't know that that was feminine that's just who i was um and yeah, I never felt like I had a place. I always felt different. Um, and when I left my hometown in my early 20s, then um, I moved to the city. And, uh, you know, I intentionally did that because 
in my hometown, I was attacked in a nightclub for being gay. Um, and a number of men um, kind of jumped me and called me horrible names whilst they were attacking me. And I ended up in hospital. And, you know, I just made a decision that I didn't want to, to be in that town anymore. And I pursued living in a city to connect with a gay community. And um, the way that I connected with that community, unfortunately, was through partying um and through drink and through drugs and there's probably like a bit of balance to this in that like I had some fun you know I had some fun times I really did and you know I can look back at some of those early days and I know that I was in my early 20s and I was having a, a nice time to an extent um but I was making connections for the wrong reasons and I was making connections in the wrong way and I was placing so much importance on these friendships, acquaintances um, that were purely kind of fostered through drinking ridiculous amounts of alcohol and taking ridiculous amounts of drugs and, you know, going to clubs and bars and parties constantly. And, you know, I thought that lots of the people in my world at that time were like best friends and, you know, all of that type of thing. And um, through rose-tinted glasses, um, I know now that that's not the case. And um, sometimes it makes me a little bit sad, if I'm honest, because I, I wonder if we were all in the same boat and if we were all having the same internal dialogue and internal battles and we were all using alcohol and drugs to self-medicate and to mask some of the problems that we were dealing with um and making connections that way um so yeah it for me the community the gay community was my way of getting validation and feeling like i was part of something and i always wanted to be the one that could drink most and take the most drugs that was my role i would rally the team i would carry the team forward i would be the person that would be the first to get up and dance on the tables that would you know, continue the trips to the bar to get more and more and more alcohol. Um, getting myself in debt in the process, you know, I always wanted to be the person that was providing. I couldn't afford to do that. As long as I was being validated in this really unhealthy way, like it didn't really matter to me. Yeah, I completely relate to to all of what you said. But there, there is this piece of, you know, I, I don't regret many things. And there were a lot of great times and fun experiences to be had. And, you know, I don't like to shut that out either. It, it was a very fun time. There there was a period of time where things were very fun and lighthearted mm-hmm. and alcohol hadn't become a problem yet. And I look back, you know, in, in early recovery, I didn't necessarily allow myself to look back fondly at times where alcohol was involved. But mm. through, you know, different parts of therapy and becoming more comfortable with my recovery and how I classify sort of that time in my life and my addiction, I'm now able to look back and still have fond memories of of the fun mm that was had in these great times and moments in my life where alcohol happened to be involved, but they were still fun 
positive experiences. And, and I can look back now and allow myself to remember them fondly, which I think is important. Yeah, it really is. And it's really nice to hear you say that because in my first 12 months of sobriety, I was a bit more not as measured as as you've just described and was very much, you know, this has ruined my life and yeah. um, everything was kind of tainted with um, just kind of not even bittersweet, just bitterness. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of prompted a few difficult conversations with some people in my network and some people in my social circle. And I remember one of my friends saying to me something like, oh, so did you never have a nice time then with us? And that really hit me, actually, that it, I've got goosebumps now thinking about it. And I felt I felt quite guilty um, because I think I'd spent my first 12 months of sobriety really speaking quite negatively about my past and forgetting that the people who'd been in my past, some of the people that were still around, and actually they were friends. It's not the people, you know, I always met lots of people in clubs and bars and we'd drink and do drugs together and then, you know, never see them again. But people who stuck around. um, Yeah, and it was was just a little reminder for me, actually. Yeah, I had some great times. Um, I had some great times connecting with that community and um, I never thought that I would be in a position where, I would kind of be able to acknowledge that and make peace with that and look back at it fondly. And um, now I definitely can. I think as I got into my third year of sobriety, the amount of space and time between my addiction ending and where I am now, um, time's just a healer, isn't it? And it's a cliche, but it just gives you that perspective. It really gave me perspective and... I'm at peace with that. I'm okay with that. Happy Sober Day, friends. For additional episodes of The Sobriety Diaries or to apply to be a guest on the show, check us out on the web at thesobrietydiaries.com or for our video interviews, head over to youtube.com slash natekelly. And don't forget to rate and review our show on whatever platform you're listening on. It truly helps others to find the show. And in turn, we really could help save lives with just a few clicks. Thanks so much for downloading today's episode. And now back to our story. It really is a great reminder, too, of how we grow and develop and and how far we've come for myself at least looking back and allowing myself that grace and uh understanding that i wouldn't act that way anymore or that i wouldn't allow myself to be in perhaps the same circumstances and understanding that that is a part of personal growth. And I think allowing yeah. ourselves that grace is important. So I'm glad I'm glad we got to discuss that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Because it's not often actually I I talk about that element and um, you know, I still go to fellowship meetings and I love them. Um, but sometimes it can feel a little like not the right thing to talk about like some of the fond experiences. 
right. um, in the rooms, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think it comes with time, and I think it comes as you become as you get more comfortable with who you are, where you are in your sobriety journey, um, etc. So yeah, I've definitely matured in that space. Tell me about the fellowship community in Manchester. What are the rooms like? What is the sort of sense of community like within the fellowship? It's incredible. It's incredible. Um, it's so, so connected. Um, Manchester has got a number of meetings every single day. Um, and I remember when I was in treatment, my therapist, Steve, who was our group leader, he, a couple of weeks in, he started to say to me, you know, you need something else. Rehab's not going to fix you. It's not going to keep you sober. Um, you need something for when this finishes. And um, I wasn't interested in the fellowship um, because I had some massive, massive prejudices, some uh, some real deeply rooted preconceptions around religion and um, the type of people that would be in there. And um, although my family is super religious as a gay man, like I've got some massive issues with religion. And so, you know, the fellowship just wasn't appealing to me. Um, and then there was a girl in my group who um, was much younger than me and she was going along to meetings and really loving them. And um, she was going to a young person's meeting um, and she was saying how she got a lot of identification in this meeting and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to give it a try. And it was during COVID. So actually, I say going to these meetings, they were all on Zoom. Um, so, you know, you didn't even have to leave your house to to go to a meeting, right. which was pretty convenient, right? Yeah. Um, so one Tuesday night, I dialed into this young person's meeting and sat and listened. And, well, first of all, introduced myself as a newcomer. And so many people messaged me like with warm wishes and nice messages and straight away, like, wow, this is so supportive. Um, and I sat and listened to all of these people, as I said to you earlier, describe my thoughts and my brain. And I always say I was kind of equal parts elated and equal parts really angry um, because... I had, it was the first time I think, even though I was in rehab, I was going to rehab every day, I still hadn't really classified myself as an alcoholic or an addict. Um, that was the moment where I was like, okay, yes, I am that, you know, I, I kind of sit in this camp. Um, but found a lot of comfort in um, in the sense of community and lots of people messaged me after my first meeting and some of those people that messaged me after my first meeting, I still see regularly today. Um, Manchester's got quite a close-knit community. There are a lot of LGBTQ plus meetings, um, which are incredible. So in the week, there are three. There's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then we have on a Saturday morning, there's a specific gay man's meeting. Um, and I'd go as far as saying the gay man's meeting on a Saturday morning um, it kind of saved me when I came out of treatment because I was going through some kind of who am I identification type issues like what am I without booze and what am I without drugs and the clubs and like I don't know what I'm interested in I don't know what I'm into like I don't know how to connect with people other than 
through those mechanisms. And I'd heard about this gay man's meeting and I even had a bit of prejudice about that. And maybe that was some internalized homophobia because I was partly like, oh, you know, classic gay men wanting to have their own thing separate. Why can't we just have normal meetings that are not exclusive? Like what's so different? Um, you know, you go to a meeting, you share, you connect, you leave. Why does there need to be a gay men's meeting? And I was hesitant to go. Um, but I went and it was really game changing because what I found was I was able to share about things that I would have felt very uncomfortable sharing about in a more open, diverse meeting, um, i.e. how drink and drugs impacted my behaviours around sex and sex parties and um, grinder, you know, all sorts of things in that space. And it never really shared about that stuff in a, a normal fellowship meeting. But I was hearing people talk about these things in this gay man's meeting and it was just really freeing and really liberating because I was able to then talk about that stuff too. Um, and it was healing that I needed to do that. I'd never realized at the time that I needed to address some of that stuff because in the same way I had shame attached to my drink and drug use, I had shame attached to how I had sex. Um so yeah, it, a, a brilliant community, um, a fellowship community in Manchester, and I've got lots of good friends out of it. Um, there are lots of different meetings, um, and it's really nice now being a few years in because, you know, you're not the newcomer anymore, and you go to meetings and you see people you haven't seen for a while, and you get a big hug. And um, so yeah, it holds. I don't go as frequently as I used to, but it, I guess it's. It's less about me having a need now. And now when I show up to a meeting, I want to make sure that I share and I help hopefully for people that are newer to the fellowship and, and hopefully they can connect with something that I'm talking about. To, to bring our conversation sort of full circle, you know, wh whatever that sort of small spark may be, or if we're able to plant the seed, I think it's a great thing. And, and I often say that we all have our own paths to, recovery, but I think one constant is community and, and to be able mm. to surround yourself with others who have the same or similar lived experience and to mm. reference something that you said earlier, it is that relatability and to be able to relate to someone who does have a similar experience and not a clinician or a doctor in a very sterile setting, but yeah, you know, someone, someone that can relate. So I think yeah. community is, is so important in, in, in recovery. So important. And I remember what my little thing was. I remember the little thing that stuck with me that I still hear in my head every day. Now it was an early meeting. Um, I, I was weeks in and, um, I remember a guy in his chair saying, as an addict, he never turned up for anything, anything, plans with friends, special occasions, um, appointments, going to the doctors, going to the dentist. You know, he'd make the appointments, but he never turned up for them, everything. Um, and his advice in his chair was turn up. You know, you got sober you're getting your life back, 
turn up to everything, do everything. And it really struck a chord with me because what he described, I'd never turned up for anything. And when I went through my amends in uh, as part of the 12 steps, I had so many amends to make where I could think for every individual I was speaking to, for every friend or family member that I was talking to, the things in my head were where I'd let them down, where I'd not turned up for things. Um, and yeah, it really struck a chord with me. And, and sometimes now, even today, when I get a bit of anxiety about something and I get cold feet and I've got something coming up and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do it. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling nervous. I hear that guy in my head turn up. Um, and, you know, it's become a little mantra. And I think that is the power of somebody telling a story. And you take the smallest hook, right? You take the smallest thing away from that that becomes part of your toolkit. Um, and that's why, to your point, going full circle, that's why sharing these stories and, and sharing these lived experiences is so important. So special. Thank you for sharing that. Carl, I always like to leave our listeners with a few tangible things or some takeaways from our conversations. If someone is struggling today, what are a few things that they can do when they turn their headphones off to spark their journey or to plant a seed? What are a few takeaways you'd like to leave our listeners with? So I had a couple of techniques. Um, for me, changing my physical environment was huge. It literally if you don't want to go outside changing the room that you're in um and it sounds really simplistic but i would get so in my head and i would sit ruminating and cycling in these thought processes um and just changing my physical environment really helped to just slow down some of those thought processes create a bit of capacity um i would always try and get outside so if i was indoors i would try and get outside um, uh, another one that was really kind of important for me, I had a few people that I guess, um, in terms of support network, I was just very close to, and I think it's important to have people and particularly people in the fellowship, perhaps, um, you've got their contact details, you're in regular contact with them. And if you're struggling, being comfortable with being vulnerable and saying, I'm not feeling great. I'm not okay. Um, I need to chat. I need some support. And I really struggled with that. That was so counterintuitive to me because I was always wearing a mask and presenting a I'm okay type, um, even though most people knew that I wasn't okay because they could see the chaos. Um, but yeah, I think being able to be vulnerable and having a couple of people in your support network that you can line up to just reach out to. Um, and let them know if you're having a, a tough time. Because typically, I can remember times where I, I've been in full meltdown and jumping on the phone to someone for 15, 20 minutes, total game changer, total game changer. Carl, what's the best way for folks to reach out if they're inspired by our conversation today or if they'd like to connect with you online? So on Instagram, you will find me at um whatnext.cal and um you'll find the podcast page which is at whatnext.podcast 
I will link all of Carl's information in the show. The What Next podcast in today's show notes, highly recommended. Carl, thank Thank you you so much for your time today. I'm so glad that we got to connect. Please keep in touch. I would love to perhaps work on something together in the future or continue our chat. Um, I'm I'm very happy and grateful that we that we got to connect. Yeah, thank you, Nate. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you having me on. Um, the feedback on the podcast is um, really lovely to hear. Yeah, this conversation has been wonderful and has been just really uh, kind of humbling. And I've reflected on a couple of things that we've spoken about. Um, I feel like you know the conversation has come at the right time. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening today, friend. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Make sure you check today's show notes for all the information discussed in today's episode and how to connect with our guests. Until next Wednesday, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, everyone.